Good morning, everyone. Pretty awesome to be here, eh? <laughs> Thank you to Greg for uh, trying to make me choke up before I start speaking. <laughs> uh, but it's a pretty, pretty epic opportunity to have three or more than three whole days to do this, hey? I love, I love being at work, but this definitely tops it for the time. <laughs> um, so welcome, welcome to people, particularly if you're um, joining our family over these three days. It's awesome to have you here. We've got some pretty, pretty cool things in store for for us all. Um, so I might just pray before we get started, and then uh, we'll fly into it. Father, I thank you for your presence with us. Father, I thank you that we don't need to invite you into the room to be with us in a gathering. Father, I thank you that you're in us, that you're always here. Father, that your spirit's been hovering from the beginning of creation, and it's that same spirit that lives in us. And when we come together and meet and join in what it is that you're doing, Father, we can come and share in true fellowship of the Spirit because we've become of the same kind. Father, I thank you that you're looking to perfect us in love and unity that's of your Spirit. You're not trying to get us to do the same thing and perform in the same way. Father, you're looking for a true, genuine, Spirit-birthed unity that's you and us, us and you. You abiding in us and us abiding in you. Father, being perfected in the fullness of life that's in your Son. Um, so, Father, I thank you for your intention for this weekend, for our time together, that we'd become one. In your awesome name we pray. Amen. All right. So... The theme of this weekend, as you all know, is, is becoming one. And we're going to be unpacking and ripping apart a number of verses in, in John chapter 17, like we heard last night, which is called in my Bible, the High Priestly Prayer. And just before Jesus died, he had a particular prayer on his heart. And it's that the church, his disciples, his followers would be one. Now, I've just got one particular verse that I want to focus on this morning, and it's John chapter 17, verse 22. And that's going to lead us to a number of other different scriptures, but we'll start there. John 17, 22 says this, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Should I read it again? The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. So Jesus is praying here that the glory that the Father has given him, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them for a particular purpose, that they may be one, just as as we are one, just as the Father is one with the Son, He's inviting us into that same glory, into that same oneness, the oneness with Him and the Father. Now, when I think about what is the oneness that Jesus has, 
with his father. What do you think that is? We see in the Trinity three distinct beings that are one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what is this oneness that the Father shares with the Son? The Son who is a person, is a, who came to earth as a man, and the Father whose physical form no one has ever seen, apart from Moses who saw the, his coattails or his his back, but he says, no one's seen God's physical form. So you have the Son, who is in a physical form, and the Father, who isn't, and the Holy Spirit, well, who knows what kind of form he has. (laughs) And so he's he's saying here that that he wants us to be one in the same way that him and the Father are one. But the oneness that the Father and the Son share is not a physical oneness at all, Right? So what is the oneness that the Father and the Son share? How are they one when they, as physical beings, are almost totally and completely different from one another? What is that kind of oneness that we're invited into with him? So now let's flick over and have a look at Genesis. I feel like I could preach from Genesis every single message because the entire gospel is contained within even the first few chapters. I've been accused of taking a verse and looking at the context and taking it so far back that I almost start every message with Genesis. (laughs) But there's something about the beginning position that God needs us to be in if we're to understand what else is to come. We need to know the beginning, we need to know the end, and if we know those two, the middle will be taken care of. And so at the beginning, God says, then God says, Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then God said, let us Let us, don't let me, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man in, not my image, but our image. Let us make man in our image. And like we've just looked at, this is not a physical image that he's created us in. It's not a reference to how good looking God is, what ethnicity he is. Jesus came to earth as a man, and he came as a physical man, as a Jew. But that's not the image that Christ had. The image is the divine nature. Let us make man in our own image and in our likeness. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as one. In one image. And it says, Now let us make man and let let me fashion man into the same image, the same DNA, the same nature that I, my father, and my spirit are in. What an invitation, hey? Let us make man in our image. Now, for those who are part of the furniture here, you'll know that we've spent an entire year 
looking at essentially what the divine nature, the divine image of God is. Can I have any punters this morning? What is that image? What is that divine nature that was Christ? Love. Danny, I'm so glad you put me out of my misery. It took a few seconds. (laughs) It was for two seconds. Got my back. But we spent a whole year diving and unpacking the divine image, the divine nature of our Father is love. And this is the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel, that God has invited us into that same image to have the divine nature, the divine likeness of our Father abiding in us and us in Him. The image of love. See, it doesn't say that God loves although he does, it says that God is love. And if we're to be fashioned and formed in that same nature, we are not just to try and love, we're to become love and love's to be formed in us and we're to abide in love so that we are the express representation and glory of God on the earth. What does John 17 say? The glory that you had given to me, I have given to them so that they may be one, just as we are one. But there was a little speed bump along the way for any other Genesis lovers like me. It comes in in Genesis chapter 3. It's called the fall of man. And what happened when, when Adam and Eve ate that fruit is that there was a transaction that took place in their inner being that the image that they were formed in from the beginning became marred and tainted and twisted, that the divine love that abided in them and that they abided in was fragmented, separated, skewed. And they became partakers of another kind of nature, the nature of the adversary. But that wasn't God's intention from the beginning. And we see Adam and Eve, as they partook of that tree, they went from being in divine fellowship, divine oneness with God, to a form of absolute separation from Him. The very first thing that happens is God comes looking for them and says, Guys, where are you? Where are you? And Adam and Eve hid and they sowed fig leaves over themselves, they went from being naked and, and, and completely unashamed to being fearful and anxious, self-centered, self-conscious, mindful that they were no longer one with him, but had become separated from the source of life. It's a bit of a speed bump, hey? Bit of a speed bump. But yet, We know that God had a plan in motion before the world ever was, a lamb slain before the beginning of time to reconcile us back into oneness with him. You know, the scripture says that for man has sinned and has fallen short of heaven. Wait, wait, what is that? Does anyone else know that scripture? For man has sinned and has fallen short of the glory of God. I don't know if you've read that scripture in your Bible. 
But in modern day Christianity with our 30,000 denominations, probably 29,999 of them would preach a gospel that said, for God, for man has sinned and has fallen short of a place called heaven. So that when you pray a prayer, you're forgiven from your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. But actually the reality of the gospel is it says the man has sinned and has fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God being the, the expression of God's divine nature that he had always called us to be in and live from, from the beginning. Man had fallen short of not heaven, but the glory that he was predestined to live in and from fallen short of the glory of God. And so the great redemption of the gospel is not getting your butt out of hell. It's getting the reality of heaven back into you so that you can live from the very DNA, the divine nature of your Father, love abiding in you and you abiding in love. I'm just saying what the Bible says because I know what it says because it abides in me. Because these aren't scriptures. This is a living reality of truth. I've been brought out of the sinful condition that I was physically born into an Adam, and I've been reconciled back to my Father. There's a divine glory that lives in me that's expressed through me. I could tell you stories of divine glory being expressed in the workplace and comments that I get from my workmates because of wrangling difficult situations over the phone with another kind of glory that didn't come from Adam. And so this glory is not something that we do, it's who we're to become. And because glory lives in us and abides on us, the glory is expressed through everything that we do. You can't separate what you do from who you are. It's supposed to just be one expression of love and devotion because of the one who abides through us, in us, with us, around us, in every way. And so man's fallen short of the glory of God, but the beauty and reconciliation of the gospel is bringing us back into the glory that God had for us from the beginning. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. And so what I love in Genesis is that God cannot wait one verse before transitioning from the fall of man into the absolute demonstration of his express nature and character in the very next situation. And I'm talking about Cain and Abel. Anyone know that story? Did you know that that's actually not a story really about a man that committed murder at all? It's a story about a man called Abel who by faith, by his ability to see what was in the unseen, was able to live a kind of life that was completely opposite to what he had inherited from his physical father who had been the father that he had been born into physically but the nature that had been born into him by birth And right in the next breath, you see a man who's living, having been born of a new father. The father that had actually really been his father from the beginning. And you see a man expressing this divine nature through 
his life and even through his works. I thought it wasn't about works. Yes, it is. But just not the kind of works that you might think it is. Works that come from this posture called being in faith, having faith in you. And so I'll just read these scriptures out. Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and, his, and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became, Cain became, Cain became angry <laughs> and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no, no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground. Uh, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of the Eden. Pretty intense story, hey? Pretty intense story. Now, we have here two brothers. I'm just wondering if I can have a little bit of help this morning from my good friends, the Groves. I didn't warn you in advance. Sorry, guys. You're the only two brothers I can think of. Do you, mind, do you guys just mind standing up for a sec? <laughs> All right. They're already trying to wrangle his, their cars. <laughs> I love the park, I don't know if you saw the parking outside, <laughs> half on, half off the curb. But do you guys mind, come, come up the front. Aren't these, guys, aren't these guys awesome, you know? Just the beautiful heart that these guys carry and the hunger to know him. I think we've been, it's been awesome to have you guys with us over the last while, hey? Um, but sorry that I didn't warn you in advance. <laughs> last time Steve got dragged up, he became Steve Jobs. <laughs> So, Steve, you can be able because uh, better not land you in it twice. And uh, over here we've got Cain, the two brothers, who in this particular story 
are physically one in pretty much every way that you can imagine. Born of the same father, of Abel, they look like each other. Is that a good thing? (laughs) Poor Steve. (laughs) They pretty much do everything together. They're both career men. We know that Abel is, and uh, you know, Abel is into his sheep and his pasture. He's into agriculture. Cain's into horticulture. He's into tilling the grounds. They've both got careers. They're part of the same family, same upbringing, born of the same father. They're pretty much one in every single physical way. And then we, when we read on in the story, we see these two brothers who are physically so similar are actually involved in a very similar function. It says that Abel was a keeper of the flocks and Cain was a tiller of the ground and they both of them brought an offering to the Lord. They both brought an offering. Interesting, eh? Both of the brothers had a form of relationship with God. You can see the dialogue coming out of the story. They're talking with him, and they both give an offering to God. Now, don't now take yourself out of the story, because how many non-Christians do you know that have a relationship with God and give an offering to God? Do non-Christians do that? Or do followers do it? Do believers do it? So don't take yourself out of these out of the story. Let the reality of the story enter into you. And allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you and to minister the reality of what he's calling us into as his people. So we have two brothers who were involved in exactly the same physical action. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord, the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also bore of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Abel and his offering, God has regard for, and Cain and his offering, he doesn't have regard for. Now, we don't need to guess what was going on in the story. It actually tells us in Hebrews. And Hebrews 11, 4 says this. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was attested to be righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith. Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was attested to be righteous. God testifying about his gifts. Through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. We see that by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. By faith, by revelation, by his ability to see what existed in the unseen realm before the world was, By this finished work of Christ that we heard about last night, a work that was finished before the foundations of the world that has now been revealed and finished within one brother, but not maybe not within the other. 
by faith, by revelation, by the reality, by the inner world that existed in one, he made a better offering than the inner world that existed in the other. So if I was to summarize this in a deeply theological way, I'd say this. Same, same, but different. (laughs) Same, same, but different. All right, thank you guys. You can sit down. (laughs) Round of applause. Same, same. Same family. Same situation. Similar offering, physically. Same, same on the outside, but in a world was different. Now, the two brothers were physically one in almost every way that you can imagine. But spiritually, Abel was living in oneness with God, and Cain had not yet experienced the reality of the oneness that he could experience with God and therefore didn't have it with his brother Abel. Now what I love about Abel is that we see here, moving in from Genesis 3 in the fall of man, Abel, this man who had been physically born in separation with God, every single human being that has ever touched foot on this planet has been born in the physical image of of who? Adam. The fallen reality of Adam, and that is a reality that exists on the inside. And so Adam, who had been physically, uh, Abel, who had been physically born into Adam, had received something within him that absolutely changed and altered his inner world. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice to Cain through which he was attested to be righteous. We see here two brothers, one who by faith had been made right with a living God. By faith, Abel had received the reality of righteousness within him so that he was able to live a righteous life and give an offering that was a righteous offering because of the reality of righteousness that existed within him. We see here a man who, having once been separated from God by the fall, whose inner realm had previously screamed at him separation from God, had received a a kind of faith within him that had made him right with the living God. The eyes of his heart had been enlightened to the finished work of Christ so that he could live in it and live from it, so that the expression and the reality of his life was one of righteous acts. And we see in Revelation that, that righteous acts are the acts that the bride lives in and from. Same, same, but different. Same in every regard, but a different reality that existed and operated in Abel than it did in Cain. Now, why is this so absolutely essential? Because if you haven't received a faith of the same kind. Let me read this verse, 2 Peter 1 verse 4. 
It says this, To those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You see, Abel had received a faith of the same kind. And that faith had had done a divine, eternal work within him that he had become a partaker of the divine nature. You see, God had regard for Abel and his offering, but not for Cain, because the offering was made from an entirely different heart posture, heart position, one by faith, the other from separation with God, from God. One out of oneness with God, having been made right and reconciled back to the Father. Now, if, you, if we haven't received faith of that kind and the righteousness that comes through faith, your, your offering will be an expression of your brokenness and your separation from God as opposed to the reality of the righteousness that you've received from Him and, trying, and, and living through Him. Why is that so important? Because all of a sudden you see two brothers with the same physical function, but one whose offering, whose devotion, whose life expression has come from oneness and the other separation. One offering was an expression of trying to appease himself to God as opposed to living from the reality of the finished work of God within him. Why is this so absolutely essential? Because if you don't receive faith and righteousness that's of this kind, you'll look look to find your acceptance and your righteousness through your performance. And you'll think that oneness is an expression of your function, not of the divine nature that lives inside of you. You see, same, same, but different. Same offering, same function, but different DNA. You know, in Hebrews it says that there is a time where where worshippers would make offerings year in and year out, but those offerings were never able to, to make their conscience pure. They were making offerings, sacrifices, doing all the right religious activities that were actually commissioned by God. But that those sacrifices were never able to make the worshiper perfect in conscience. And then it goes on to say, but now in this new and living way, 
The reality of the gospel cleanses, cleanses the conscience from dead works so that we might serve a living God. When the reality of the gospel enters into you and you receive a faith of this kind and you know that you've been made right with him, reconciled back to the, him, all of a sudden now your works are not in a desperate attempt to please him. They're an expression of the love that's been formed in you that you're now abiding in. It's essential, aim. Eh? And it says, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Interesting that it's no regard for not just the offering, it's for, it was for Cain and his offering. What's he saying? That God hates Cain? That God's not for Cain? Absolutely not. In fact, you see in every situation in these verses, beginning with Adam and Eve, God comes and his love comes and he comes to restore and to draw back to himself. Adam and Eve, where are you? And God comes to Cain. He comes to him because he's for him and he wants Cain to experience the same kind of oneness that Abel has with him and with the father. And it says this, so, so Cain became very angry and his face was gloomy. His face was gloomy. He's a bit gutted that God has regard for Abel and his offering, but not for his. He's a bit frustrated at that. Hey, now picture with me, it's been a long, hard day. Tess has gone out for the night to party it up with the ladies. And I think, man, I should really... I should really do something around the house, maybe clean the dishes, do a bit of a vacuum. You know, out of good, well-meaning intention, eh? And Tess gets home, and she kind of is tired, and she goes straight to bed, and it's like, hey, did you not see the vacuuming that I did, and the dishes, and, you know, did you, do you not, do you not see all these things that I've done for you behind the scenes, uh, and Tess is like, oh, yeah, that's, that's nice. Good on you. Hey, did you make Levi's lunchbox? That was the one thing that I asked you to do. <laughs> True story. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> but imagine that, right? And here I am in all of my good, well-meaning intention in the sense of, oh, actually, that's not what I was looking for. What would well up, is it? Do you not appreciate me? Are you not, are you not thankful for all the things I've done for you? The offering, the, the, the pain, the toil, the striving that I've done to get the house tidy? Now, if, if my offering elicits that kind of response, what's going on in my inner world? What kind of offering was it? Was it an offering that was made? that was freely given from the reality of righteousness, from the reality of oneness through the divine nature of love being formed in me. Because if, you, if love that's formed in you, if the divine nature in you is pure and the thing that you do isn't valued, appreciated, thanked, actually that doesn't change what sits in you because love loves. It doesn't say that God does love. He 
is love. And so the reality of love exists. So love's not looking for a thank you. But the fact that Cain's face is gloomy is sure evidence of the reality that exists in his inner realm, right? His offering is an expression of his brokenness, not of his oneness. He's looking to find a thank you and appreciation for what he's done for God. I wonder if we can be like that in the church. Have you not heard my fantastic messages? Why aren't you texting me to say thank you? Just wait till you hear my singing voice. (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) When you hear me sing, you'll know that I am. (laughs) But this is actually a really deeply, deadly, serious issue, which is so ingrained in modern day Christianity because it's ingrained within us. That because of the fall of man and our separation from God, our inner world screams separation from Him. And when you enter into your Christianity in that way, without this root system being crucified that we looked at a number of weeks ago, your entire devotion to God will be an expression of your lack of knowledge of Him as opposed to the reality of the revelation, knowledge of love that exists within you you'll be constantly trying to perform to be accepted. Not being accepted and offering spiritual sacrifices, a life of worship that's laid down because of the mercy that you've received. See, your worship isn't your act. Your worship is is the reality that exists in your innermost being the mercy that you've received having impacted you in such a way that your entire life now is dead and hidden in Him. And everything that you do becomes now an act of worship. Your job is an act of worship. So I'm not trying to find my identity through my work. (sighs) Man, if you are trying to find your identity through the things that you do, whether it be your work, whether it be through raising your kids, what happens if your kids go off the rail and your identity is entangled around their behavior, you'll be constantly thinking that the way that they behave is a reflection on you. Whoa, that is a dangerous place to live because kids are up and down every day. But saying that, don't check out of your responsibility towards your kids. You've got to hear the oneness that he's inviting us into. Because God comes and confronts Eli, the great holy man Eli, who ministered and raised his spiritual son Samuel in the Bible, who God used as a prophet. And God comes to Eli because his three sons were literally off the rails, off the rails caught up in all sorts of womanizing and other things. And God comes to him and he says, Eli, what's up with you? What's up with your sons? Now, God doesn't hold Eli responsible for his son's actions, but he does hold him responsible for not acting and not being the father to him that he needed to be. 
So what is he saying? He's not holding him account for something that someone else does. He's holding him to account because Eli, as a prophet of God, is called to live from love. He's saying that I don't really actually care about your sons, I care about you. And the fact that you're off, your sons are off the rail is actually not your issue, but your issue is the fact that you should have rebuked them, but you didn't. The fact is that there should have been love in you to be to them who you needed to be, but you couldn't, and you didn't. So don't find your identity in other people's behavior, whether it be your children, your wife, your work, But don't check out of your responsibility to be who you need to be in those environments. And so that's why the gospel starts and ends with us. You can't think of the story about Cain and Abel out there. You've got to think about the reality. Maybe Cain or Abel exist in here. And allow the living word of God to enter in and penetrate and divide soul. And spirit. See, this is a story about a man living from his soul realm and a man who's entered into the life of the spirit. I wonder what inner realm exists within you. I tell you when you'll know. When you do something for someone that's not valued and not appreciated and not seen what comes out of you, it will determine what exists in that inner world. And so... God comes to Cain. It says, Cain became very angry and his face was gloomy. And then God comes to him and he says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face gloomy? If you do well, will your face not be cheerful? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door and its desire is for you. But you... Must master it. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face gloomy? If you do well, will not your face be lifted up? God comes to him and says, Cain, there's so much more, excuse me, there's so much more that I have for you than to live the self centered, self consumed life. If you do well, Will not your face be lifted up? Now remember, back to beginning, the glory that you had given me, I had given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. Cain, if you do well, will not your face be lifted up? Will you not then be able to demonstrate the radiance of his glory? Be a demonstrator of his nature. Cain, I've got so much for you than to just be my servant. Than to just be one in function but not in fellowship. I've got so much more for you than to leave you in that state. I'm calling you to be one with me, a son, a co-heir, a partaker of my life, my nature of promises, my promises. I love you. But right now, you don't love me and you're not abiding in my love. I love you, but the reality that exists in you shows me that you don't love me. Why? Because right now you don't love your brother. You know, it says this in 1 John. He who says, I love God, but does not love his brother is a 
liar. Now, right there, you see the oneness that God is inviting us to. If you say, I know God, but don't love your brother, actually, you're a liar because what you are professing with your mouth is absolutely and completely opposite to the reality that exists in your inner realm, in your inner world. So the fact that you don't Love your brother is an expression of the fact that you don't know me, but you can know me. Because, because what your brother is living in is actually for you, not against you. You see, your brother Abel is a prophetic picture of who I want you to be. But right now you're so offended that your brother's offering was accepted, but yours wasn't. You're more concerned about your reputation and how you're perceived and you are actually about entering into the reality of revelation life, experiencing the divine nature of God in you that would set you free from you and have you living actually as your brother lives. See, he's a prophet to you. He's your brother, but he's a prophet. He's prof- he is demonstrating in his very DNA the prophetic promise and wisdom that you're invited to live in and live from. He's for you, and he's prophesying through his demonstration of an inner world and an inner realm and an inner life. It's called eternal life. It's called Christ in you, the hope of glory that's for you. But right now you're rejecting him and you're rejecting me because you're more concerned about you and your reputation, then you are actually about entering into me and becoming who I predestined you to be. What are you more concerned about? Keeping up your religious appearance? Making sure that people think right things of you? Making sure that you take your Christian boxes and are engaged in all the right kind of activities? Or are you more concerned about the divine nature of your father being infused and imparted into your innermost being so that you can radiate and demonstrate the glory of God on the earth that you were called to live in and live from? Now, without that, a world will not know that Christ was sent for them. Why? Because you'll say one thing with your mouth, but your heart and your life and the demonstration, the expression of everything that you do and everything that you're a part of will be a demonstration of your self-centered brokenness and not of his selfless divine love that he has come to lavish on you, your brothers, your sisters, and the world. And so Cain talked to his brother Abel, and it happened that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. So, how do you respond when someone with a greater measure of revelation turns up and demonstrates a kind of life that you know nothing about? Does it threaten you? Does someone else's revelation and power that exists in them inspire you or does it actually repel you? Now, these are real questions that we need to grapple with if we're to be The church of God that truly is one. Why? 
Because the reality is that someone else's growth and someone else's revelation is actually the best thing that could have ever happened to you. You see, Cain, having a brother like Abel, you've hit the jackpot, my friend. You have absolutely hit the jackpot. Because not only do you have a relationship with God, you've got a brother who lives in the next bedroom to you, who at every point and every day demonstrates and speaks what's possible for you. He's a prophetic picture for you to enter into. He's for you and everything that I've imparted into him through faith, this kind of faith is actually the kind that I'm inviting you into. Will you come into it? Will you be one with me, Cain? Will you, will you let go of you and enter into what's for you? But he couldn't because his inner world screamed at him, protect you. Live for you. His inner world screamed at him separation from God and separation from his brother. And his brokenness drove him to repel and reject the very one who had been put there for his sake. Man, that kind of thinking, if someone else who has, if, if you, if someone else's revelation of Christ makes you feel insecure, you're living from a demonic wisdom. An absolutely, totally demonic wisdom. Because that wisdom is the very wisdom that's keeping you out of life. Did you know that in First John, it says about Cain and his offering, it says that it talks about Cain's deeds being evil. And because his deeds were evil, he slayed his brother. Now, what's so important about that? That what God defined as evil was not the murder. What God defined as evil was not the murder. What God defined as evil was the operating system that existed in him. This demonic mentality that he lived in and lived from, that is even more serious than murder. Are you aware that if you're living from that kind of self-centered thinking, that what's in you is worse than physical murder? Because Jesus doesn't actually elevate the standard at all. He just brings clarity to what the divine call always was. And he says, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder already. So the demonic, the demonic thinking, the demonic attitudes of comparison Man, those things need to be crucified hey, so that we can live in and from the divine nature of love within us. I wouldn't wait another day. If what I'm saying to you resonates in the way that you think and you see, today could be the best day of your life. If, you're, if the word of God comes and does a work that's divine and is eternal. If the word of God goes from being out here to being in here. That the old man, the old nature, the old way, the old operating system 
is crucified by love. That you receive an impartation from heaven of the divine nature, the divine revelation of Christ in you that literally drives out fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. And when you know the love of heaven, not just towards you, but you know the love of heaven in you, you're no longer living in fear towards God and in fear towards one another, thinking that other people's fullness is actually to your detriment. No. Other people's fullness is to your benefit. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? What a confession, eh? What a confession. Am I my brother's keeper? Now right here, you see the evidence of a man whose mouth is uttering just the wisdom that lives and operates within him. So that when God comes to him and says, Cain, I've got more for you than to love, uh, than to live this subpar life, this empty life, this broken life, this self-centered, self-consumed life. I've called you to live from love in you. And, he's, and so God comes and says, We're, all right, number one, do you love your brother? Oh, Interesting that he doesn't even say, hey, oh, sorry, by the way, I um, uh, actually killed him. Uh, He says, am I my brother's keeper? Should I be responsible for my brother? Should I care enough about my brother? Should I care enough about my brother's spiritual life and spiritual growth and well-being? I wonder how much we care about one another. I wonder if we see one another's growth as being just as important as our own growth. Because that's what divine love does. It's that in pursuing love and having love formed in you, like I said before, you can only take responsibility for yourself. But in love being formed in you, actually, all of a sudden, the responsibility that you carry extends to other people, not a responsibility that you need to control them and that they need to behave so that you look good, a responsibility that's healthy and whole because you are your brother's keeper. Because regardless of how your brother's doing, behaving, in you is love for your brother so that when someone asks you, hey, how's your brother doing? You're able to say, hey, yeah, this is how they're doing. You actually keep stock. You actually know what's going on in other people's lives. Shock, horror. In this modern world, this individualistic life, that you would actually know what's going on, not just in the lives of your brothers, but in the hearts of your brothers and sisters. You've actually entered into true discernment of the Spirit. You know how they're going. They don't know. They don't know that you know, but you know that you know. Because you know not from the profession of their mouth, you know because of the demonstration and the wisdom that they're living from. See, God knew and Abel knew, but Cain didn't know. Cain didn't know the reality that existed in him, the demonic thinking, the demonic attitude. So he says to God, am I my brother's keeper? 
He was absolutely and totally unaware of who he was called to be, that he was called to be a man that lived from love, a man that knows his purpose and his calling doesn't say, am I my brother's keeper? Should I wipe my hands of all responsibility for one another? See, Paul says, I'm free from the blood of all men. That's a position to live from. What he, hasn't, what he isn't saying is that he's jet-setting around the entire world to preach the gospel to as many people as he possibly can because he needs to save the entire planet so that his... No. He's saying that the reality of love that operates in him means that he is to his brothers who he needs to be in any given situation because love is in him. And he's free from the blood of all men because whether they choose God or don't, he's going to play his role towards them regardless. I wonder if we have that kind of attitude because that kind of love is the only kind of love that will have you being able to stay when everyone rejects you and when no one appreciates you and when no one says thanks and when no one pats you on the back. Now, if we're to be a church that's one, we need to live from that love in us and abide in that love. Anything short, we're selling ourselves short of who we're called to be. Then he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Your brother's blood is crying out of the prophetic demonstration of a life of righteousness that you're to be living in and living from. In Hebrews, it says that even though he was dead, he still speaks. Poor Cain, eh? You know, this guy just cannot get a break. <laughs> he literally kills his brother because he cannot like, reconcile the fact that his brother is in a greater measure of revelation than him. So he tries to kill his physical life. And Hebrews says, while he's dead, he still speaks. <laughs> so try and take me out, guys. And I'm sorry, the reality of the gospel is not going to go away. Try and take Greg out. I'm sorry, guys, the blood is going to cry out from the ground and every single syllable is going to say, guys, you might kill me, but you can't kill the promise that I've invited you into. You can't take me, you can't make me quit on you. You might quit on me, I'm not going to quit on you. And you're going to be constantly confronted by your brother's blood that's crying out and by your own conscience that actually will never find satisfaction and will never find life until you find me and until you enter into who I've called you to be, who I predestined you to be, a son whose very DNA, whose very nature is the same as one with the Father. Until you become the express Glory of me on the earth, demonstrating, radiating the nature, character, likeness of my father. My brother's blood, your brother's blood is crying out to you from the ground and it's going to haunt you in the best way possible for the rest of your life. Now that kind of responsibility for much is given 
much is required. And the question that I have is, what are you doing with the word that you've heard? Has it made its way inside of you that you've become one with the reality that I'm releasing this morning? Or when you hear a message like this, does your conscience condemn you and make you see where you're not and make you think that actually you're doing worse than maybe even you thought that you were and make you crawl into a ball because that's the demonic response that comes from separation from him as opposed to oneness with him. If you're hearing like that, you haven't actually heard at all. And your brother's blood is still crying out to you but actually, instead of empowering you and inviting you into and calling you up, actually, it's condemning you. But wait, there's good news. Because the blood of Christ, it says, speaks better things than the blood of Abel. The blood of Christ does not condemn. It says that there's no condemnation in Christ. The blood of Christ speaks of better things. While Abel's blood cried out to you to say, hey, here's a prophetic demonstration of what actually you're not. The blood of Christ says here, this is my sacrifice that from the beginning of creation, I was the lamb slave for you to bring you into the very reality of oneness with me. The blood of Christ speaks better things than the blood of Abel. It doesn't condemn. It says, hey, You were worthy, like we heard this morning. You were worthy of my blood. And now having been made worthy of my blood, I want the blood to to be infused into you so that a new bloodstream enters into your veins so that you're not just washed by blood. You're not just covered. You're not just made clean. You're living from the reality of of righteousness. You're engaging and entering into right works that have come from a right heart, that's come from a right reality, that's come from faith, the substance of righteousness in you. The blood of Christ speaks better things than the blood of Abel. And he says that that it was pleasing to him and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So that while Abel's suffering was a prophetic demonstration of righteousness that Cain wasn't, and Christ's suffering and sacrifice would be not just for his sake, but bringing many sons to glory. Many sons to glory. Are you one of those sons? It's who he's called and predestined us to be before the foundation of the world. And it's the Father's will and intention to bring many sons to glory. Many sons to enter into and have formed in them the glory of God that they may be the demonstration of his life, nature, character, reality on earth. Man, you get a church that's one like that, And a world will know. Why will they know? Why will they know? Because the love that you have for God and love that you have for one another is now being expressed towards them. 
that the blood that was shed for your benefit, now that they can see a physical demonstration right in front of them, that that blood was actually shed for them. That the love that God has for you is in you and is in you for them. That there's a prophetic picture of who you are called and can be. What a gospel, eh? What an invitation. Can we be those people? Can we be those who enter into this divine oneness with him and one another that we express the glory of God on earth that a world would know that he sent not just for you, but for them. So Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come like a scalpel. Father, let it come and enter into our hearts. Let it divide soul and spirit. Father, I pray that the reality of what you have spoken will bear much fruit. Father, I pray that you would convict hearts that the seed that's been sown would bear fruit that's 30, 60, 100 fold what's been sown. Father, I just want to thank you that you love us. And I want to just thank you that your plan is so big and so massive. Father, I just want to thank you that you never give up on us that you're constantly for us and you're giving us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn and receive you. And Father, I thank you that in the receiving of you is the receiving of life as it was always intended. Um, So Father, let us be this people. Let us be formed in a oneness that's not physical based on function, but in reality of your Son being formed in us. The hope of glory. Father, we thank you for your kindness, for your goodness, and for what it is that you have in store for us in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'd love us to ask questions, like, and I'm going to pass this around so we can get it on the recording. Do you have a question that you would like to ask Sam in relation to what you've just heard? I'm so thankful you're my brother. (laughs) I really am. I'm so thankful that the strength of God in him is for me and that we walk together and we walk quite closely together, Sam and I, and we discuss stuff. But it's that, eh? I remember saying, like, do you want Jonah Lomu in your team or do you want him running at you? Even if he takes your position on the wing, do you want him in your team or do you want him running at you? There must be questions after hearing something like that. So, anybody got a question? And not a statement, a question. Not thoughts, questions. How long have you been sitting on the revelation you're carrying? On the revelation or on this particular? On the revelation? On this particular message? Cain and Abel? Uh, I I don't actually know. Things kind of come and go. Um, But this is the thing that kind of sparked my interest for this in particular. I've probably been thinking of rolling around my my mind for the last two or three weeks. But but it's just, I feel like, you know, the story of Cain, sharing about the story of Cain and Abel is just 
I feel like it's just a vehicle, what we talked about again, for bringing to light what I've known in me that comes out in all sorts of different typologies and pictures and examples and forms. And it's really, it's just the gospel, right? You know, like this is just a message of it's Christ in us, you know? And so while that has only been the last little while, it's just one expression of what comes out in a whole range of different ways. So. I was wondering, you were talking about our response towards other people out of love. Um, is that response different when it's towards Christ-like or f- um, followers of Christ versus people that does not follow Christ? Um, and the, the reason why I'm thinking of that is what is the responsibility of us if we, um, of, if we live from a position of love towards other people that's not from Christ there must probably be a different approach to um, the responsibility we have with the way people behave and what we would, in love, call out with fellow believers versus non-believers. So what does that look like? Great question. I think, you know, I was saying before that, like, love isn't something that God just does. Love is who he is. And because it's who he is... In every situation, he, he loves, you know, and so that's to be the same for us. When, when love's formed in us, the love that, w- that God has for us is the same love, the same source that we love him with, and it's the same that we love others. And so whether those others are people that are in the body or people that are in the world, the sub- because the substance of love is in us, it's expressed in each of those environments. And, and so, now to me, physically that looks different here than it did yesterday where I was writing an urgent policy paper. But the, the world in us, the love in us, is, is what, because um, um, the, the love in us, um, how, what am I trying to say? There's no formula for what we need to do that's right in any given situation. It's like the love in us defines how we respond to people and we just and you know how to respond in different ways. So loving loving my boss doesn't look like necessarily bringing my message to share with her before I go on leave, you know? Um, but loving her can take on a different form. It can look like my faithfulness towards my job. It can look like the little conversations that we have, even about God, but it's led by his spirit because there's love in me for her. Does that make sense? And so that what's in us is, is the same in every environment, and he gives, and, and his wisdom enables us to know how to respond and what our responsibility is in every given envir- environment to be who we need to be to each person and in each situation. Does that kind of answer the question? Do you have anything else? Yeah, yeah, I think, like, so God doesn't have any favourites. There is favour of those who are obedient, but he doesn't have favourites, so his love is just love. So, you know, there's a question a man asks, well, who's my neighbour? Willing to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbour? And what did Jesus say? Everyone's your neighbour. 
So every single person is the, who you're going to love from the love of heaven with because it doesn't have favorites. Now, there is an order and a divine pattern where God says right now, first, with this love that's in you, who do you love? Him. Then who's second? His children. So what have you just done if you love him first and the children second? What have you just kept? Well, you've just kept the two commandments that the entire law and prophets hang on. Can you? Because it's a commandment, yeah? So the command from heaven is to be able to do something that you and I can't do. Is that fear? Or is that God? It's God. So you can't, but God can in you. So if you can't and you find yourself not yet being able to keep the commandment, then you need to be able to find yourself to be able to keep the commandment. So whether that's God, whether that's humanity, there is a commandment that's associated with a covenant. And the covenant you're invited into is oneness with the creator as the creation. It's called being like Christ, which is the exact representative of Christ, which means you're his co-heir, which just means you're becoming his bride. Because the son and the bride will be one. And they will live exactly the same while they're on earth because they will love one another with the love of heaven and they will love humanity because that's the children that the bride and the groom are raising up on this earth and will raise them up in the millennial. So if I can't keep that commandment, then what am I not? And I'm not becoming her because I can't keep the covenant that's given or the commandment that's given to her. But God gave his one and only son and through resurrection power, I'm then empowered to actually keep the thing I couldn't keep before out of my own strength. But when the power of God enters me, I find myself able to keep the thing I'm commanded to do. So if he says you know me, you'll keep my commandment. If you can't keep my commandment and you say you know me, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So then you're no different to what you've just heard. Thinking you're something, but you can't live it, so you're not it. But you have an opportunity for it. And this is what the invitation has always been, because it's not an old covenant. It's, sorry, it's not a new one. It's an old one, one John says yeah. So it's irrelevant who the people are. They're your enemy. Isn't that what he says? The lost love the lost. The sinners love the sinners. Anyone can do that. But what about the one that actually doesn't love you, that hates you, that's coming for you, that's lied about you, that's punched you, that's crucified you? What about that? Ugh, that's eternal. Yeah. And that's the standard, eternal, not earth. So it's God first. That's a covenantal marriage promise. It's brother second, sisters, earth third. But it's the same love. Because the people out there need to see exactly what Sam said, an expression of what a family actually is. And so we have a massive responsibility 
that is weighty but it's not heavy because it's only heavy if it's in you. If it's in the spirit, it's weighty, but he gives you the power to live this out. And this is the difference between true godliness and forms of godliness. And so when you actually go, you're full and overflowing with the substance of love and people can't fathom how you can love them in the way you do, especially when they talk back about you, when they lie about you, when they cheat you out of things and you just love them. They can't fathom it because it's not of earth, it's not of them, it's of an eternal one. And now you have an opportunity to actually testify, not teach. I was going to say the teaching of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now you have actually something to share of a testifying work of love in you. So not only do you testify, you've loved before you testify. And now the substance of what you say has weight because you've modeled something before you've spoken. But you do speak. But you speak from being full and overflowing of the substance called love, which you're abiding in because it's abiding in you, because you lost your life. So you can't have this love unless you've lost your life. It's the prerequisite. Lose your life, get filled with love, lay it down and live. Let me say that again. Lose your life, get filled with love, lay it down, then live. You can't lay your life down unless you're filled with love. This is why he said to Peter, you're going to deny me. What did he know that Peter didn't know? You don't have love in you yet, Peter. So you can't deny me or deny you. You're going to deny me because you don't have love. You need love to deny you. So he couldn't lay his life down, the thing he said. And Jesus knew that, so he told him. But what did Peter do? Believe. I don't believe that. I'm going to lay it down. Did he? So you can't either. You and I cannot lay our lives down for Christ unless we're filled with love. And you can't be filled with love until you lose your life. That's why it's pretty empty in the body of Christ. That's why the standard, isn't it? Like we're talking about a standard that's so high, it's beyond you and me. I love that because I tried to live to a standard and it got me nowhere as a non-Christian. Yeah? Not as a Christian, as a non-Christian. So I had a reference for what I couldn't do. And everything I did brought me to the end of me, which now prepared me to receive love. So then I could lay my life down and live for him, not me. And others. And this is the power of love. So it has no favorites. So it's God first, humanity second, meaning the body of Christ, which if you're married, starts with your wife, men. Isn't that what Jesus said? And wives, you have a role to play in this covenant as well, don't you? Which is really through love. It says submit, but it's really loving, isn't it? But men, if you're married, you're the leader, you're the head. 
Are you modeling this reality so your wife and your children, not a lost world, your wife and your children, if you have children, if you have a wife, actually experience this love that you've been loved with from heaven and you're loving God back? See, the problem with people like me is we lead people to the world and we're not even taking care of home. And we sacrifice home and our relationships at home for people that don't know him, but maybe my home don't even know him either. And so it starts from the closest and moves out to the outer. But the church has done this. Forget about the closest. Let's go to the outer. And that home's messed up. So you go outside and you say, hey, come back to my home. Oh, that's pretty broken too. And there's nothing to off anyone because it's brokenness and brokenness. And we're out of divine pattern of God. That's why we're back to front. That's why they don't know and we're not one because we're not doing it. We've been taught. We've taught ourselves. We've got to go there. He goes, no, just stay right here and go right there first. What was the pattern he gave in Acts? Go where? To the ends of the earth first or? We presume a whole lot of stuff, man. We really do. We're full of presumption. And so it starts here. Then it goes to Danielle. Then it goes to Maddie, Lily, my discipleship men and women, if I'm walking with them and women, and it goes to the wider church. Then it goes to the earth. Earth is last. Because as it has time to facilitate itself through there, by the time I get to the non-Christians, I've been transformed because this isn't easy. This is actually a formational process. It is not easy loving my wife. It is not easy for my wife loving me. It's a beautiful covenant put together, isn't it? I'm going to put two people opposite that are going to wind each other up and we're going to see if love and surrender is part of this problem because then there's a divine oneness and what does that look like and what does that look to raise kids up? So it's not based on who the person is, it's based on your relationship with the person. Other questions? I know that was a bit more, but he takes Classic. over. Great Ingrid This is what an apostle and a teacher look like tag teaming. Um, Sam, thanks for the a really awesome, clear teaching you've just given us, uh, which I've never heard before, and that's wonderful. And I've learned a lot, and a lot to think about. Think about. Um, my question is... Um, well, two things. Uh, Abel, what was the? Why did Abel know, and Cain didn't? How did Abel know the father, and Cain didn't? And the other is, is how? How do you do that? So we we hear we hear your message. It's very clear, and you've you've enlivened it with a lot of visual images for us, which is wonderful. And we can all agree, I'm sure, with what you're teaching us. But I might be the only one in the room that gets to the point of, okay, I want to love, and I want to love like you've spoken, and I want to know him like you've spoken. But I just can't do it. <laughs> I just can't do it. And I can, 
submit myself in every way possible. And I can surrender myself to whatever, but still I don't love. So how do I do that? What a question. <laughs> uh, that is such a good question, eh? Um, and I think, you know, I feel like what you're saying is, is so dynamic, eh? Because I know from, so for me as a teacher, I know that there's a grace on me to be able to bring things to light, you know? But I can, I can make and, or help you understand a typology, and I can even, in a typology, relate it to God where you realize, oh, actually, yeah, that is, that's correct, you know? But what, what I can't do is actually bring you into the reality of what it is that's contained in him, hey? And I think, to me, the question is, you know, not necessarily just about, um, you know, Cain and Abel, but it's actually how, how do we come to know him? You know, and how did how did Abel how did the way that Abel came to know God is the same way that we're to come to know God, right? You know, is that it says it's through faith, through revelation. You know, and and to me that's like that's what makes this thing so dynamic and both. Um, I can pour my heart out over a microphone but actually it has absolutely no ability to change anyone because it's only something that the Holy Spirit can do where his, where his word enters into us and it, and when we receive the word, we repent. And, you know, that's what it says in, in Acts. It says, what, was, what, was, what must we then do? And Peter says, repent, you know. And so it's the, it's the one thing that we physically can't do to one another, you know. I can teach, I can preach, I can bring to light the scriptures, but I can't impart revelation knowledge and revelation life, you know. And that's what Abel had, is that he didn't have the Bible, and he didn't even have a teacher. His dad, Adam, wasn't a particularly good teacher, either in demonstration, you know. And so he didn't have a physical teacher but it actually says that you shouldn't call any man on earth your teacher because you've got one teacher in heaven, which is Christ, right? And that's the reality of the new covenant in Hebrews is that it says that, um, you know, no, you shouldn't need anyone to teach you anything because God himself is going to be your teacher and he's going to write his words on your heart. And so I think to me, how did Abel know him? Through the revelation of who Christ was in him, you know? How do we come to know him? through the revelation of Christ in us. You know, and Paul he says, you know, that, you know, Christ wasn't revealed to him. He says that had been predestined for Christ to be revealed in him, you know. And so um, that's that's the very thing that we can't do. And even Jesus couldn't do it, you know. He says that, you know, like, it's to your advantage that I go. Because if I, unless I go, the Holy Spirit won't come, and He will lead you into all truth, you know. And so, Jesus wasn't able to bring the disciples into revelation. And if Jesus wasn't, what ability do we have to be able to do that? But there's one who does have that ability, and it's the Holy Spirit, you know. And so, He that, and that's why in all of this, um, you can sit here. And hear a great message and leave inspired but not changed because it's not the words that change you, it's the word 
entering into you that are brought to light by the Spirit, you know. So does that answer? To an extent. I think just to add to that, the key is what is faith? Okay. And we've messed this teaching up. So we confuse faith and trust, and they're not the same thing. So we talk about we live by faith, I've got a faith. And I said, well, what does the Bible actually say faith is compared to what we think it is, what we've been taught it is? So who can actually tell me what the scriptures, what God actually says, what faith is in accordance to what's written? Because this is the reference. So if you don't have what's written, you don't have faith. And it was by faith that Abel offered up the offering. So faith is obviously a very powerful substance of a reality that exists in God, defined by God, that enables Abel to live a kind of life that his brother wasn't. So what is faith? Because we throw it around like lolly water. I live by faith. I live by faith. Then do you really? Because does your life reflect the life of faith you say you live? And I'm telling you right now, most Christians confuse faith with trust. And we actually, what we say faith is, is trust, because I don't have faith, so I trust. But do we even trust then in what he says? So can someone tell me what biblical faith actually is in accordance to what God says it is? I'm going to even test you. Where would you find the scripture? Okay, at least we know that's where it is. Hebrews 11.1, 1, yeah? So this is how intentional you have to be. If you don't even know where it is, then you obviously don't know where faith, what faith is, because if you don't know where it's written, then you might not even know what it is. So faith is the assurance of what you hope for, the conviction of things not seen. Some say the evidence of things not seen. How do you have a conviction of something you can't see because you're looking at it? Like you're looking at it. So you've seen it, but you can't see it. That's why you don't make God in an image. Now, did Jesus tell his disciples they had no or little faith? Throughout the entire time he walked with his disciples, he actually told them they had no or little faith. Can we agree with that? What would happen if Jesus came up to you today and said, my church, you have no or little faith in accordance to what's written? My mum just said she'd have to agree. And then he would say, so do you want faith? So how does faith come, my people? Right, not how the disciples said, increase our faith, Lord. Because that sounds spiritual, doesn't it? You see, he was saying stumbling blocks are going to come. And his stumbling blocks are going to come, okay? And then he started talking about sin. He said, man, the one that brings the stumbling block, you don't want to be him. So this is the language he's talking to them. Then he talks about sin and forgiveness. And they're starting to get found out because what he's saying and the weight of that word is like, oh, so they go, "Uh, increase our faith. He goes, no, if you had faith, you would have actually spoken. He says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, what would have come out of you was this. You would say to the mulberry tree, go, and it would be uprooted and planted in the sea. 
So their response was the evidence of what he was telling them the entire time he was with them because they couldn't hear anything he said, correct? So if you can't hear what Sam has said spiritually, you're in trouble. But you have to hear and understand for sight to come so then you what you're looking at by faith you can live in accordance to. And none of it, as Ingrid has said, is it a work of you. It's a complete work of the Holy Spirit. So your and my role is to be able to hear spiritually. Because it says faith, a special kind of faith, which is spirit. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 4.13 But having the same spirit of faith, which is what Sam said in 2 Peter 1. Who wrote about faith in 2 Peter 1? I'm glad you got Peter. But he was the guy that got told he had no faith. So when he walked on water, did he do that by faith? A tiny bit, yeah. And because at the end of that, Jesus and he sinks says, Why did you doubt you man who have little faith? So he actually got out of the boat trusting on what was said. Are you tracking with me? So if you don't have faith and God speaks and you don't trust what he says, then you're probably never going to have faith because it all goes part and partial. Faith and trust are like brother and sister. They're part of the same family, but they're not the same thing. And so the disciples go, increase our faith. He goes, no, if you had it, you would have spoken something entirely different. But he then tells you how faith comes. So there's a spiritual type of faith connected to a spiritual type of hearing, connected to a spiritual type of word. There is a spiritual type of word that must be proclaimed into the earth. It requires a spiritual type of hearing and it performs a spiritual type of faith that now sees into the unseen because we don't live by sight, we live by And faith sees what's in the unseen realm because it's eternal, not temporal. If you want scripture, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. 2 Corinthians 5, about 7. How well do you know the written scriptures? Because they are speaking into the earth a reality for you and I to eat and drink. So we actually live by faith in who? Jesus Christ. So everything is contained in the unseen one. So if you have faith, you see everything in the Christ and you live by that faith in the Christ. So you walk above the earth, not temple, you're in eternal, you're on earth, but you live now by faith. And it says to not live by faith is a sin. You're missing the mark of the standard you were bought for. You're not a bad person. You're not hitting the standard, the mark. Sin means to miss the mark. You're not living to the standard that I died and raised for you to get to live to because you don't actually live by faith because you don't know what's in the unseen, which is everything in the person because every promise is where? Okay. So if every promise is in the person and I don't have eyes to see what's in the person, then I can't have faith. So then I need to trust in those that do. 
I need to trust in what he says when he says it and get out of that boat and into this realm. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit functions with you and your eyes of your heart get opened. I pray the eyes of your heart would be opened. Ephesians 1, 17, 18, 19 and 20. And you would actually come into the reality who I've chosen you to be. But it's all by faith. And we talk a language. And do you know what it is? It's blind. It's blind faith. So we don't live. Because if faith sees, and I say I live a life by faith, then you need to tell me about what's in the unseen realm. If you tell me you have the mind of Christ and are growing in the mind of Christ, then you are seeing the things that are in the unseen. That Paul said, no, eye has seen, ear has heard, has yet entered the heart of man, which is the place of understanding, all that God has, what? Already prepared. He talks in advance because it's already prepared for those who what? Which is then you keep the commandment. So the whole thing brings you back to the singular thing God gave you, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, which you can't do, which means you have to lose your life and stop trying to come into this reality in you. And it all starts at the loss of your entire life, which you can't do unless God starts to show you who he really is, because all you know is you. So if I lose me, what am I going to lay hold of? Well, it's him, but I can't see him. I've only heard about him. And he sounds really good, but I know me more than I know him. So Paul said, in a view of knowing you, I consider it rubbish. So it's not about looking at you. It's not even about trying to die to you. It's about asking the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ. That's the answer. Not trying to die, not trying to change, not trying to fix you. You can't. It's about going, like when Ingrid said, I can't. Yay, I'm now positioned to you can. And all you do is look up. You fix your eyes on the author and the... So what's he perfecting? Us into faith, into himself. And it actually works. But you need to know what faith actually is compared to what you might have been taught it is. To maybe what you thought it is. And then you go, wow. I actually need to trust now in what you're saying. That's scary, eh? Can you imagine me and Peter? Has, had anybody walked on water before that time? So he was the first, yeah? Peter, come. If it's you, Lord, it's me, come. oh my goodness, this is actually working. <laughs> and what did he do? He took his eyes off, he looked. What did Rochelle say? Don't look down, look up. Sank. That was just an opportunity to learn. Yeah? And Jesus is covering us with this incredible thing called love, while we run around digging holes thinking we're actually going to get some water in our own strength. Like how many holes do you want to dig before you realize there's nothing at the bottom of your hole, your well? Some people lose their whole life and never stop. And I'm talking about Christians. Never mind a non-Christian. 
So you've got to realize there's no well in the hole you're digging. But you also have to realize you can't, but he can. And now because you know you can't, it creates a hunger and a thirst for the one who can. And you're now repositioned from you to him because you've heard all you who are hungry and thirsty who can't, I am the one who can. But you've got to leave everything of you that's trying and can't to come into the one who can. And then when you find that, all of a sudden that becomes the way you live. And you're living over here, but you go back over here to everyone on this side who's still digging holes. Brothers and sisters, Christians who are still digging holes trying to find life and you stand with them and you speak the word of God that you heard that was spoken to you and you love and you're patient and you're gentle and you don't hold a wrong and you do everything you do, you're actually becoming who to those people? Ah, so then you're what? Keeping the, which is the new commandment. Didn't he give that to Peter? He said, hey, Peter, I know you want to come with me, but I give you a new commandment. Can you love these guys? But he wasn't interested because he wanted to get on mission with Jesus. He had the cape already. <laughs> Jesus gave him the sword. He said, oh, you want to be the hero of the story, do you? Yeah, because we're going to go transform cities and nations. Oh, okay. Really? Oh, can we just, there's a, what do you call it? A speed bump. <laughs> there's this one little factor. You just can't. Do what you think you can do. No, I can. No. Oh, okay. I know James, John, Thomas, they can't do it. But I can. Oh, okay. Then prick up your sword and let's go. And I'm going to lead you into your demise. I'm going to lead you into brokenness because you're so full of yourself. I'm going to take you where you will never, ever get to. So pick up your sword, let's go. And love is covering that because on the way he says, you will go where I have gone, but not now. You see, too many Christians are trying to run before they've learned even how to crawl. Let's go. Do you have love in you? Uh, is that a problem? <laughs> well, sort of, because, you know, it's the one thing. And if you don't have that, you're a gong. You're actually nothing and it profits you zero to actually burn your life up doing stuff for me that I didn't ask. Oh yeah, it's a problem. What's the one thing and the only thing you can take into heaven with you? Love. So to the measure you're in love today is to the measure you're taking it with you. Fair call? So what if your love is little and you need to have it a lot to be the bride? You're a little girl. He ain't marrying a little girl. It's another demonic teaching we've taught that everyone is the bride. Everyone is betrothed. Not everybody will be the bride. That's why there's five and five. How do you know that? Because through revelation of the living scriptures, he brings to light, not man's opinion. The teacher teaches you from his own scriptures, not the opinions of man that can be flying everywhere. Don't even take what I just said as Greg's Opinion, seek the Holy Spirit, he will reveal it. But ask yourself why there is five and five. Ask yourself why if you don't love him with all your heart, you're not worthy when he's made you worthy. So what are you not worthy of? 
So to the capacity of the love in you right now and in your life till you die is to the capacity of love you take into and you're going to stand before what? A judgment seat. And the judgment seat is for punishment or reward. What? So what do you think the number one reward could be for those that love God? A marriage forever with the one who bought and paid for you. But you must love him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And you must love people the way I did if you want to be a mature people. The very thing that many Christians run away from instead of running to. All I'm doing is speaking that. But I have a revelation of everything I've said, so it comes out in power, yes? And it comes out weighty. And then when you feel the weight, it's like, ooh, it's like this. Can you feel the weight of this? Yes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the squeeze comes on from love because you might be running the wrong Way, but you don't know you're running the wrong way, and you might have been taught to run the wrong way. And so, love comes and it holds you and it squeezes you. Go, Oh, you're restricting me. I said, No, it's a narrow path, and I'm trying to redirect you onto my way. Why? So you can know what it is to know what I know and have me on the inside of you and actually be able to keep what I've commanded. Like it's not an instruction, it's not, a, it's not an option, it's a commandment from heaven by the general who sent his son and said, here's the number one thing that you need to be able to do as my people. So if we can't, then I would encourage you to start there. And not be worried about your ministry or your signs and your wonders or your teaching or your giftings because apparently it says the more excellent way is love. And there'll be no prophecy in heaven. There'll be no moving mountains in heaven. There'll be no raising the dead in heaven. But there will be the question around love. And you can get all entangled in gifts and miss love because it's fully possible to heal someone, raise the dead and not know love. Isn't that written in there? And why is it in there? For a warning. It's like, boop, boop, boop. Warning, warning, warning. All institutional churches. Boop, 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 boop. All Christians living by the flesh. Living by the flesh. Living by the flesh. Boop, boop, boop. All Christians in their gifts that think their gifts are better than love. Boop, 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 boop. What on earth was that noise? Can someone turn it off? That was all of heaven screaming, stop. There is an order and there is a pattern and it is to all flow because there are righteous works to be done, but they come out of oneness, fellowship, not out of function. And so out of fellowship comes faith. Out of faith comes fruitfulness. Out of fruitfulness comes function. But what we've taught is let's go to the top and make function first. Give your life to Jesus, now go. No, give your life to Jesus and fall in love. As you're falling in love, he will lead you to go. So you don't wait around waiting for love, waiting for love in all the wrong places again. But you're posturing yourself, coming into love, going to work, going to the world, posturing in love, going into the world, 
posturing in love, going into the world, maturing in Christ, loving God, loving everybody, waiting for the day he picks you up and says, well done, my good and faithful servant.